0: We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Kaurna people, the traditional custodians whose ancestral lands we've recorded this podcast on. We acknowledge the deep feelings of attachment and the relationship of the Kaurna people to country, and we respect and value their past, present and ongoing connection to the land and cultural beliefs. Hello and welcome to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. My name is Ali Clark and I'll be your host as we unpack the leadership journey brought to you by professional and continuing education at the University of Adelaide. The podcast will bring you all the tools, tips and insights to help you unlock your leadership potential and get the most from your team. We'll be talking to South Australian leaders from all walks of life as they share their leadership stories and we'll support your lifelong learning with the latest leadership thinking and advice from the university facilitators to provide the essential guide to levelling up your leadership. Our guest today was a South Australian police officer in the Elite Star Group and he had incredibly specialist skills such as being a sniper and a diver and was trained in the SAS's counter-terrorism in tactics. In this role, he was shot 14 times in five seconds in one of Australia's longest sieges and lay for three hours waiting for help. Yet he defied all the odds and returned to work in the Star Group. He has since founded and leads the Australian Centre for Human Durability where he helps leaders confidently lead survive and thrive in any environment. He also teaches programs and courses for the University of Adelaide. Derek McManus, good morning. Good morning, Ali. What do you think it means to be a leader?
1: To be a leader, uh, I honestly think being a leader is taking care of people. Uh, If you take care of people, they will take care of the job. The leader has to look after people first. Number one, always.
0: That's pretty hard, though, when you're dealing with all sorts of different people, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But if you care about people, it becomes easier. Um, I've always enjoyed being in a leadership position, mainly because I get to influence the lives of people. Uh, I have people coming to me with their family problems, uh, their work problems, their social problems. And I'm happy to discuss it. I'm not going to solve all their problems, but I'm happy to discuss it. And that way they feel comfortable in my presence, in our work conditions, um, and they're more applied to the work they're doing.
0: Well, let's talk, I guess, about applicational work and caring for others because that all sort of dovetails into the situation that you found yourself in all those years ago. Um, Before we get to that, why were you drawn to not just being in SAPOL, but being very niche, some of the best of the best of
1: SAPOL. Yeah, thank you. The reason I went to Star Group is that I was in the police department and general duties and loved the work, but there weren't quite enough challenges for me. Um, and I was hit by boredom. And um, this will tell you how long ago it was that this experience happened, I was flicking through the newspaper looking at job ads
0: <laughs> for another job. There
1: was no seek back in my day. Um, and I was looking for another job just for a new challenge, something that was going to maintain my interest uh, and somebody said, why don't you join Star Group? Um, and I've gone, do you know something? I can't think of anything else. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and so let's have a crack at it. And you know, having a crack at Star Group, it was a massive physical challenge but it's also a mental and emotional challenge as well.
0: Yeah, well, for all of us, just explain what the difference is from, I guess, day-to-day duties of a police person that we might run into on the street and what it is that Star Group do.
1: So... General duties policing um, is wide and varied and unpredictable. There have been situations where I've um, faced people with weapons, been in wrestling matches to take a weapon off of a person in general duty. So it has this broad gambit of everything you can possibly face, but really dealing with nice people as well. Um, Star group is high-risk arrest, hostage siege situations, counter-terrorism, cliff rescue, cave rescue, mine rescue, helicopter operations, VIP security to the Queen when the Queen comes to visit. It's all that higher-level challenge, which takes a higher level of uh, physicality, which is what most people focus on. But more importantly, it takes a higher level of leadership and a higher level of planning um, and problem-solving as well.
0: So talk to me then about the training that you would have to or did go through to make that step to that higher level?
1: The first phase of uh, getting there is going through uh, pre-selection and Mm -hmm. the pre-selection is just like going into the military SAS. Obviously, they are the elite of the elite and we sort of look up to them but we also sort of um, uh, copy what they do. Uh, Our role is very similar. So our selection process uh, assesses whether you have uh, the leadership skills to make decisions, take action uh, in uncertain conditions. They throw you into situations where you cannot uh, possibly succeed mm. just to see how you manage failure when you're at absolute exhaustion point.
0: So they absolutely need to stress you, stress you, stress you, and then you have to be able to make decisions.
1: Absolutely. Right. They take you to the absolute end, uh, physically, and mentally, and emotionally. And Sounds then, like
0: fun, Derek.
1: Do you know something? <laughs> I look back on it and I loved it. Painful at the time, yeah. but I knew it was going to be painful. Yeah. And as much as it hurt... There were many times where I was just smiling and I actually wrote myself a little diary as I was going through it because I was just, I did enjoy it, but I enjoy pushing myself. As we've just discussed, I just rode a mountain bike in Nepal up to you know, high heights. I love taking myself to a limit, but always having some anticipation of what it might be and how I might handle it. Um, so once you get into Star Group, then they hone what you already have. Um, and they take you to another level again.
0: Okay. Take us to that day in 1994 and tell me what Star Group and the police had been called to do.
1: So... 1994, 3rd of May, we were asked to go and arrest a guy who had a warrant for 197 counts of fraud. Not something you normally associate with violence. However, Star Group had been involved with him twice before, and I was on both of those jobs. And in the first job, detectives were investigating the frauds, and he had said, any cop who comes to my house is going to get shot. So we had a hint yeah. that he might be violent, just a hint. Just a hint yeah. But he'd never actually done anything of violence. Okay. He'd never been investigated for anything of violence. It was always uh, threats, intimidation, all those sorts of things. So we certainly had to stay within the legal limits as to how we approached the house and uh, how we tried to arrest him. Because there was nothing of violence in his past or in the immediate situation, uh, we had to just go to the house, knock on the door, Uh, and ask him to come and answer the door. Uh, He didn't do that. However, we had an observer, a sniper observer in the bush for about the last 20 minutes, watching the house. So we knew he was inside. We knew he should be answering. We knocked again, called again. Again, he didn't answer. We knew that if he didn't answer the door, we had already made the decision. He has to be arrested. He has to be brought to court to answer his charges. So we were going to make an entry. We were going to go through the front door and it was quite a process to get in there, battering rams and all that sort of stuff. So took a little bit of time. I went down the side of the house to assess a glass sliding door to see whether that was going to be easier uh, for access. I was going to assess it, come back and talk to the sergeant and say, hey, listen, there's a better option down here. Uh, But as I got to within about two feet of that sliding door, the guy inside started to shoot and I was his target.
0: You say he decided to shoot. You were shot 14 times in five seconds. What does that feel like? It's not
1: the best feeling (laughs) that I've ever had in my life. Um, Interestingly, when I first got hit, I just didn't realise I was being hit. There there was probably an overwhelm on my brain. I didn't feel the pain. I didn't feel impact. um, And I actually didn't even hear the sound of gunfire to start off with. And all I knew was I was suddenly falling to the ground for no reasonable reason.
0: And I'm presuming, you know, we're picturing the star group. I'm presuming you're all padded up and... I've got flak vest yeah. on
1: and as I was falling to the ground, I'm cursing myself and you can imagine the sort of language that I'm <laughs> using, you know, not the nicest and I won't repeat it here, but I was absolutely cursing myself but halfway to the ground in somewhat of a slow motion I looked at the glass sliding door and I saw these round holes that hadn't been there a moment before then I heard the sound of gunfire and I still haven't felt impact or anything else and as I was falling to the ground I've gone, mm, I'm falling inexplicably, there are round holes there's a sound of gunfire, I must be falling because I'm getting shot. Wow. And before I've hit the ground, I've gone, Derek, don't be too hard on yourself because if you're getting shot, it's quite acceptable to fall over. <laughs> and that's literally <laughs> what I thought. It, it, and, you know, those those situations and conversations get worse as it goes through. Yeah. yeah. So is
0: it generally a case of it's everything slows down or was it just – you were trained to with an nth degree that you could process it so much better than, say, anybody
1: else could? Um, that's an interesting discussion because I don't know exactly what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Um, and doctors have not been able to tell me, psychologists have not been able to tell me. Some people in car accidents have this slow motion. Mm. And I've spoken to people who said the, the tissue box was floating through the air in front of them for about 30 seconds. So why it is we have these experiences, I don't know. Okay. I think one of the reasons I was able to think through it the way I did is partly my Star Group training, but partly my own personal um, approach to this situation. I had a very open, honest, confronting conversation, as I call them, about the reality of what I was going to face. And I knew that being in Star Group, high-risk arrest, hostage seat, I trained with the SAS in counterterrorism. There's a reality there that one day I may be shot and injured, And I may be shot and killed.
0: So when you say you had a very open conversation, is that with yourself? Is that with the people who matter to you most, loved ones, family, or...?
1: Um, everybody, everybody okay. that I, so I could. So very, the, very
0: clear in your head that this is a possibility.
1: Absolutely, and and the first person we have to have that conversation with is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, until we have that conversation with ourselves, we can't have it with other people. Um, so I had that conversation with myself. This is reality. This is what I'm going to face. These are the possibilities. If these happen, how am I going to manage it going forward? forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had a very clear conversation with my wife and uh, I sat down with her and this is five years before the shooting when I first joined Star Group. Um, I said there's a very real chance I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed and I've been told off for glossing over that statement. Um, well, I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. For me it's a reality and it's just one of those things I deal with but some people are going, hang on, hang on, repeat that? Yeah, what, exactly. did, what did you just well, say? Derek, look
0: us. I'm sitting here thinking about the <laughs> conversations when my husband rings me up and says, I might be late home. I'm like, come on. <laughs> okay.
1: So, so I, I sat down with her and I said, if I get shot and I die, what's your life going to look like? Because it's not all about me. This is about caring for other people, the people that we live with, we love, the people that we work with. We've got to have these conversations with other people as well.
0: So then you're lying there, You the realisation hits you that you have been shot. Now, I think in any movie scenario, the good guys come in and pull you out and get you to hospital and call out for George Clooney or something, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's certainly not what can happen here. So just explain the next three, four, five hours.
1: Yeah, three hours I was lying on the ground with massive, multiple life-threatening injuries. I mean, the first doctor that finally gets to
0: you thinks you're dead. Right. His
1: first thought is, yeah, yeah. I'm dead. And yeah. i had that conversation with him probably three to six months, months later in the hospital. Uh, I went in to visit him and just thank him. And he said, Derek, when I first saw you, there was no movement, there was no sound, there was no breathing, um, and there was no colour in my skin because there was no blood because left in so my body. Pain. So uh, what
0: happened in those three hours?
1: So in those three hours, uh, initially I fired back. When I dropped to the ground, I fired back and, and there's, you know, we could analyse that three seconds for about three hours as to how I responded and my thoughts and all those things. Um, I fired back. When I fired back, he stopped. I rolled to my right. um, And despite all the injuries I had, like, my left thigh had two bullets in it. My right Achilles had a single bullet go through it, two in my stomach, uh, a severed artery in my left forearm, severed artery in my right wrist. And despite those injuries, I managed to get back to my feet and stagger around the corner. Um, I'd only gone about seven or eight metres, my legs started to grow weak through shock, loss of blood. Um, I lean against the wall just to gather my thoughts and support myself. And as I lean against the wall, my forearm's broken in two places. Mm-hmm. And as I lean against the wall, my hand just folds back right along my, forehand, uh, right along my forearm. Uh, and I just look at it and I go, my God, this is not a good day. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and it was literally that, that clear. Um But where I was there wasn't safe. I had to move to the next corner. I fell to my knees because my legs were growing weak, crawled a little bit on my knees, fell to my hands and knees, uh, and then I collapsed to the ground, and that's where I stayed for about the next three hours. In my pre-planning, in my open, honest, confronting conversation about the reality, I said, if I get shot and I don't die... What do I want to do as an absolute perfect response to this situation? Mm-hmm. And the only way we can do that without actually experiencing it. So I've never been shot before, so I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. To be able to do that sort of planning, we have to look back in our life and say, what have I experienced that is similar to this that might have the same emotions, the same physiological response attached to it. And one of the situations I had back in 1987 on general duties is wrestling this person with a uh, uh, a pistol. Uh, we got into a wrestling match with a guy. The gun was broken. He'd been pulling the trigger, trying to shoot my partner. We've got into this wrestling match. As we're wrestling, he calls out to his girlfriend, cock the gun so that it's fireable. She clambers over us. She cocks the gun, and as she she cocks the weapon, I put my thumb between the hammer and the pistol to hold the hammer back so it can't be fired. And I go, how? And in my conversation about if I get shot, how do I manage it? I said, how did I manage to control my mind and my body and be so clear on thoughts? And, And then there was a process before that that allowed me to do this. And so it's about looking back in our life about, and I love this conversation about when we have good consequences in our lives, we need to analyse how did we create the good consequences. It's not just about saying how do we create bad consequences and be responsible for it. How do we create the good consequences as well? So I went back and I analysed all those and I said, okay, if I get shot and I'm not dead, then how can I utilise those skills in this situation to give me some influence over it so that I've got some amount of control over that outcome? And that was pre-thought out. So four things that I knew I needed to do. The first was control panic, not let panic take control of the whole situation. Control shock, the body's physiological response to physical as well as psychological uh, injuries or or traumas. Um, I had to slow down my heart rate and I had to slow down my breathing.
0: Which to everybody else in those things, that would be the exact opposite to how we would react. We'd be screaming, we'd be (laughs) hyperventilating, the whole
1: lot. And, and, you know, I love talking to people about exactly that. Everybody says, oh, well, I can never train to that level because I'm never going into that situation. I don't have star group. We need to train for the experiences or the circumstances we can realistically expect to encounter in our day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. We all make choices We all put ourselves in circumstances where we have some anticipation of how things can go. If we have some open, honest, confronting conversations about those circumstances, we can go, well, reality says other people have experienced the best of the best out of it. Some people have experienced the worst of the worst what's ruling out me having either one of these experiences? Probably won't happen, but you can't completely rule it out. So we've got to prepare for the worst. And if we can prepare for the worst and say, if the worst happens, can I manage that? Can my organisation manage it? Can my family manage it? Um, And if we can manage the worst and handle the worst, then everything else after that is easy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we've got to look at the worst and say, can I handle it? But we've also got to look at the best and say, if the best happens... How
0: do we get there as well?
1: How do we get there? But if the best happens just by, by happenstance, how do we leverage it? Because we've got to be prepared for that too. Otherwise, that opportunity just slides past and we'll be ruining that missed opportunity. So we've got to prepare for both ends.
0: We'll come back to some of these amazing lessons because, again, you know, this is about leadership, and already there's so many things that you're talking about that leads into that leadership realm. But to that time, and I want to ask, the most basic question again, does, does it hurt? <laughs> I, I think I'd be, you know, I'd be shot if I wasn't asked this to her. Can we make those jokes?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Does it, does, uh, did it hurt? Well, again, or, or
0: was it you taking and going back to all that pre-planning so it dulled whatever you were going through physically?
1: Again, this is one of those fascinating conversations that when I speak to kids in schools and one kid asks, did it hurt? And the whole Place breaks up. Oh, sorry, I'm always that kid. Yeah, yeah, but it didn't. It didn't actually hurt. Now, how? Again, doctors can't explain to me why it did, why it, you know, mm. why it didn't. Um, I believe, you know, partly the body was just overwhelmed. My mind was overwhelmed, but I was also so focused on getting an outcome that I knew that I needed to control. Um, that I was able to put the pain aside and just focus on that outcome. Now, probably a combination of all those things together, um, Mm. but I knew that I had been shot in the stomach, but it just felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. I knew that I'd been shot in the left thigh, but it just felt like something on the football field where somebody knees you and you, you get a dead leg. Um, I was able to see my forearm. Yeah,
0: yeah. your um, hand flipped completely back. My so. hand
1: flipped completely back, but as I was lying on the ground, uh, broken bones were poking out. There was a massive gap, like that's you know, part mm. of the scar that's yeah, still see. there. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was there but it wasn't painful and I was able to just control my mind, my body, my emotions and focus on the things that I needed to do. Once I got into hospital and I'd had surgery and I came out of surgery, the pain kicked in real yeah. time. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I was on some very good medications.
0: <laughs> so let's get to that because I can only imagine the amount of rehabilitation that has gone into you being able to sit here Let's start with the physical, but then the mental yep. and emotional as well. Yep. Um, the physical, now you've said at the start you enjoy making yourself uncomfortable and pushing your body to the limits, but I'm guessing that you then had to do that almost every day for the most mundane of tasks that oh, you absolutely. Would have always taken for granted, as we all do Yep. And we take our body for granted.
1: Yep, absolutely. I remember there was uh, one time probably six to nine months probably six months into my rehabilitation, eventually got to a gym um, and I was lifting a one-kilo dumbbell and and the first couple was okay and then the third one, my arms starting to shake uh, and I saw the physio just watching me and, um, you know, I just knew that I just needed to keep on progressing through that. So, yes, some of those absolute basic mundane things. Um, Did you ever want to
0: quit? I mean, anybody oh, listening. Lots, oh, thank lots of goodness times. you absolutely. said that. Thank lots goodness. of times. Because anybody listening up to this point, I think, would be saying, oh my God, you know, I would have walked away. I would have been yep. done. Yep, absolutely. Okay.
1: But why didn't I quit? Why did I keep on coming back? The one thing that I wanted from the time prior to being shot, the discussion I had with my wife while I was lying on the ground um, and throughout my rehabilitation, the one thing I wanted was just to be able to get back and run, hop, skip, jump with <laughs> my kids. And if that's all I could ever do for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. And that's what I said five years prior to the shooting. This is a reality. I may spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, but anything better than death is going to be a bonus to me so long as I can interact with my kids.
0: That's the physical, the mental and emotional, which I guess is where we get to now. Now, that's obviously your mental and emotional drive and you've got this beautiful, beautiful emotional carrot at the end that you're striving for in your family and your kids. Yep. How, though, do you control it and not end up angry, bitter, hating the world, hating the perpetrator? I don't know, you still might. Hating the circumstances that got you there or ruining, or just feeling unlucky and down?
1: Again, this is a conversation I love having because people find it hard to uh, understand my frame of reference and how I handled all those things. Five years prior to the shooting, had the conversation with my wife open, honest, confronting conversation. Um, I then talk about, and and this is in some of the things that I teach through uh, the university, I talk about taking responsibility on four levels. Take responsibility for our choices, Take responsibility for our behaviours after making the choice. Take responsibility for the consequences, both the good consequences and the bad. But take responsibility for the future afterwards as well. But take responsibility for all those four uh, and make the decisions prior to making the choice and taking the action. You've got to take responsibility for those four levels. So prior to the shooting, I already knew that if I get shot, I may have to deal with being in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. I may be dealing with nightmares, flashbacks, PTSD, all those things. And what I said is, if I do get into that situation, I do get shot, these are reality, what could I anticipate as my best response to those things? And this surprises many people. Um, remember, this is thirty years ago mm. when men were men mm-hmm. and they didn't have emotions. That's right. And you know, you were better than that. And things all, weren't all called
0: PTSD. Of... Things you didn't talk no, about. No, no, that, that's did you? right. Yeah. Um,
1: five days after the shooting, I threw my hand in the air and said, "Get me a psych." And I, I used that term, and that's exactly what I said: "Get me a psych. I want to talk to a psych." Um, and it wasn't because I thought there was something wrong with me. I didn't think I was having any problems at all in fact I was very comfortable with where I was but I wanted to again anticipate what might I experience and how might I deal with it the psychs have dealt with people who have had major traumas and dealt with it well they've seen the people who have dealt with it badly I wanted to know the difference and if it happens to me what can I anticipate experiencing and how might I best handle it Um, I got to see a a psychiatrist, one of the best in Australia, Dr. Sandy McFarlane from Adelaide University. We had about a three-hour conversation and he obviously picked my brain about what was going through my mind and how I was handling it, but I was picking his brain as well about if PTSD does come, if I do have nightmares, uh, what can I experience, who has dealt with, blah, blah, blah. We had a three-hour conversation, two to three hours. I can't remember exactly how long, Um, but at the end of that, he cleared me psychologically to go back to work the next day and I've never had to go back and see him again. And And he right. said, you don't have to come back, Derek. You've got it all in train. You know exactly what's going on. You've, you're able to anticipate what might happen and how you might handle it. Your plan is fine. Um, and in relation to the shooting, I've never had to have any psychological assistance uh, after that, no anxiety, no stress, no depression, no PTSD at all in relation to the shooting. Now, I say in relation to the shooting, uh, because about two and a half years after the shooting, uh, my marriage broke down. Mm. And I separated from my wife, and separating from my wife... She was still looking after the children, so I didn't have 24-7 access to these children that kept me alive for the three hours that I was lying on the ground, that I was living my life for, Uh, and that was devastating. She was brilliant about it. She said, Mm. Derek, if you need to come and visit the kids at three o'clock in the morning, you can do that. So we were... But it was an
0: absolute change of everything that you... Absolutely. We were
1: acrimonious on different levels, but she was brilliant. But everything had changed no access to my children, no relationship. My uh, social circles had broken down because I wasn't in proximity and all those things. Uh, I was now living on my own, separated, isolated. Um, Things weren't going well with management at work for lots of different reasons. Um, And I got into a situation where I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't eating well. And when I looked back you know, there was a time there where I probably only cleaned my teeth twice in a month. Yeah. You know, um, and I wasn't training hard for work. I was still at Star Group and operating, but I wasn't training as hard and passionately as I wanted to. So I thought to myself, "Hang on, I'm missing something here. I need to I want to train hard. I must be missing something in my diet because I'm not eating well." So I said, "I went along to a doctor and said, "Give me a blood test." Tell me what vitamin is missing in my diet so, you, so I can take a pill.
0: So you looked at what? It purely physiologically almost Absolutely
1: physiologically I had no idea that at that stage I was dealing with depression. And right. and I, I love introspection and, and looking back and going, how could I possibly have missed that? Um, and what I think I experienced, same as anybody going through depression, PTSD, whatever it might be, anxieties, um, once we start spiralling down and we come off this plateau of where we're operating very comfortably and confidently, once we start spiralling down into depression, then our Ability to problem solve, our ability to analyse just becomes overwhelmed because I don't have the energy to do that sort of stuff. I don't want to do thinking at higher level. I just want to do the basic stuff. Mm. Cleaning my teeth was too much hard work. But what I was able to do was go, do you know something? I want to be more passionate about my training. And when the doctor said to me, he gave me a a test and and said, Derek, you've got mild depression, you've got mild PTSD. Literally, I sat there and went, damn. (laughs) Okay, how do we fix it? How do we manage it? And it was that quick. Conversation I had with the psych, Sandy, was it may happen to me. If I if it does happen, it's manageable so long as I get onto it quickly. I was very fortunate. I was diagnosed with mild depression, mild PTSD. Um, I was proactive. I was engaged in the process, did everything the doctor told me to do. Uh, and when I went back for my next just a check he gave me the test again and said, Derek, it's moved on, it's passed, you can go back to... Normal life.
0: You do understand, though, how unusual that response is, because that's something I think um, you know. People listening need to have a really uh, clear um, discussion about because that doesn't happen for a lot of people that have depression, mild or otherwise. That ability to think, okay, here's the steps, and I am on board for it. Yep, because it's a really, I mean.
1: there's no two ways about it. It was still challenging for me. It wasn't as if it was just, oh, excellent, let's play with this guy. Yep. No, no, it was challenging for me. It was, yep. damn, okay, I'm here. But how do I – and this is about looking at the future, not worrying about our past. This is about looking at the future and going, from where I am now, what steps do I need to take to get to where I want to be? Mm-hmm. I would not have worked these steps out myself. So I had to engage with what the doctor told me, do everything he said because he was the expert. Uh, but they also had to resonate with me to a certain degree um, and I just got on board with those and mm. and I was able to overcome it. This course that you mentioned
0: that you run at the University of Adelaide, it's on sustaining optimal performance. Yep. So far I've been listening to so um, things that you said and things like caring for others, things like I guess seeking out expertise if you don't, have that, you know, going to that doctor and then listening to him or her because they were the experts. But what and how do you link the durability side of things to optimal performance? Is it just a case of going back, going back, going back to the well, or is it something completely different?
1: Probably two processes that I I like to focus on um, are two aspects of resilience, um, I call them functional resilience, mm-hmm. which is stuff we need to get through day to day, week to week, all the stuff that is kind of drudgery that we have to get through, uh, we don't always enjoy. Um, And the second one is aspirational resilience. And aspirational resilience is the resilience you need to take on the challenges that you're passionate about. And, And I relate this to taking on the Star Group course, taking on all those things in Star Group that are massive mental, emotional, physical challenges, but you love them mm-hmm. and you want to take them on and you want to be successful at them. Um, and so I look at that aspirational resilience uh, and there are you know processes for functional and processes for aspirational. Um, and some people get locked into aspirational. I've got to be aspirational. I've got to keep on pushing myself. But unfortunately, if we keep on pushing ourselves all the time, then we're going to hit anxiety, stress, depression, burnout, and life is going to drop. So you've got to know when to switch from aspirational resilience and functional resilience and be comfortable doing it because in functional resilience, essentially what we're looking for is a no-stress zone. Okay, this is where... um, I've got a, a continuum of uh, durability where we start something brand new, we're fragile. We move from fragility where we are learning and new and exper- uh, experimenting as to what we can, what we can't. We then get to where we are fairly competent and resilient. If something goes wrong, we know how to fix it. And then we get to this place where we are durable, 100% reliable. We know that everything we do is gonna go exactly the way we want. And when we're in that zone and everybody hits this zone every, every now and then, in that zone we are 100% reliable, we know exactly what's happening and there is no stress. We are just enjoying life. These are the days you come to work and you go, I love this. Oh, my God, this is great. Can't wait to get there. Whereas the, we all know there are other days where we go, oh, my God, I've got to go back to that place again. Mm. So,
0: And do you find often in that instance people then push the reason to the external? So, for example, yes. they blame the workmate or they blame being a leader and you know such and such bringing problems to them or they blame the type of job they're doing or whatever it might be? Correct.
1: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody tries to blame the external, put it on somebody else, whereas it's our choices, right? And we have influence over how we experience them. In fact, uh, I was reading something the other day that said uh, there is no situation that is either good or bad. It's how we experience it that allows it to be either good or bad. Because some people go into the same situations and some people go, I love this. And other people say, I hate it. And it's exactly the same experience. A lot of it depends on our backstory, our history, our experience, our exposure. Some of it depends on our passion. Um, and, And I guess the most important thing out of everything is that whatever we do has to have meaning or we have to understand the meaning for why we're doing it. So some people have a passion for their work and they love the work they do. I know that you love radio and what you do, it's just your passion. I've got friends who have done jobs that they absolutely hate, but they do it very well so because they want to keep their job, um, but they do the job they hate because it pays extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's casual work rather than full-time work.
0: So then they can go and learn to fly a plane or Correct. it gives them the freedom it, that they want to It gives them the money to fuel yep.
1: their passions, mm-hmm. right, whether that passion is skydiving, international travel, uh, sports car drive, whatever it might be.
0: Lucky my passion is watching bad reality TV, Derek, <laughs> so it's very, very cheap. It's fine. And... <laughs> um, You talk about durability, resilience is obviously the other word that seems to go hand in hand with this. If I was to say to you what are the most common traits of resilient leaders, what would you say they are?
1: So I put them into three uh, levels, the fragile leader, the resilient leader and the durable leader. Mm -hmm. The resilient leader is very comfortable with their job. Uh, They've got to a place where they feel like anything that goes wrong they can solve the problems of the world, right? And resilience has two sides to it, but the one that most people focus on is if something goes wrong, I can bounce back. So in a place of resilience, I look at people and I I believe that they are waiting for something to go wrong mm-hmm. and then responding to it. So it's a reactive role, not a proactive role. Whereas the durable leader is the person who's going, OK, we're making these choices, we're taking this direction. When we take this direction, there are opportunities here, but there are also challenges. Let's prepare for both of them. Here are the challenges, and if the challenges are going to come up, these are the indicators that tell, the, tell us these challenges are coming up. And when we see these indicators, we need to take action at the indicator, not wait until the problem has happened. Right, and then bounce back from it. Let's head it off at the pass.
0: So, from the absolute sound of this, us focusing on resilient kids, resilient leaders, maybe we need to change the mindset and change the word to durable. Do we?
1: I would love to have that implemented. Yeah, we need durable people, um, but durable comes with vulnerability as well. Okay, and we have to say, be accepting that I make mistakes, and if I make a mistake, I flick back to resilient. And while I'm in the resilient mode, I've got to solve the problems, but I want to get back to that place where I'm 100% reliable.
0: Is it possible then to be in that space if you are in a community or a business or a workspace where people won't let you make mistakes, others won't let you make mistakes?
1: In that situation, you will have people in that organisation who are constantly fragile because they're scared, they're scared of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk to organisations about this because we all have people in our organisations that we know are great at what they do, but they won't make a decision, they won't step up to leadership, they won't uh, self-author something. They will. They will do whatever you ask them to do, but you have to ask them. Because if they take initiative themselves, they're scared that they are going to get smashed down for it. And that's that vulnerability. And that's that vulnerability. And this is where a leader taking care of people becomes most important. Because, yes, we've got these fragile people who don't really have the confidence, but if we're willing to sit down with them and train them, then they will step up to becoming at least resilient, if not durable, for the role that they've been asked to do.
0: So then... From the sounds of it, you're saying that you think everybody can be resilient and if not resilient, durable. Absolutely. And it just takes that training.
1: Everybody already has it. We just don't realise it. The classic example I like to explain to people is when you first started driving a car, Mm -hmm. that first time you stepped in behind a wheel, what was it like? Right? Overwhelming, scary, white knuckle on the steering wheel. A few
0: bunny hops, if I'm honest, Derek. A few bunny hops. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) But what's it like now? When you drive, you chatting with the kids, you're singing songs, you're thinking about, but if something happens in front of you, bang, you're right there. You're able to do exactly what you need to do in that situation. So your driving now is durable for the level of driving that you do. Could you take where you are now and become an F1 driver? Not a chance. I can't do that either. We go back to being fragile in that situation. Mm -hmm. So it's about saying when I take on that next challenge, I'll go from being 100% reliable to sliding back along that continuum to being resilient. But this is normal. It's acceptable. Unfortunately, uh, in fact, I uh, I ran a program for uh, fighter pilots over in Williamtown, New South Wales, And I said, when we take on this next level of challenge, we're going from being the best of the best back to being a little bit resilient. Mm. And one of the fighter pilots said, does this happen to everybody? (laughs) I said, yeah, this is just a natural process. And he said, oh, thank goodness for that. I thought it was just me. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem we have. We don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. When we become the best of the best and everybody's looking at us and going, you are so great, we then become scared of making a mistake. And this is where we become durable in this point but not able to grow. So we've got to add to there that vulnerability um, and humbleness to be able to say, damn, I stuffed up. Okay, how do we fix it? Oh, my gosh, that's the first time I've actually thought that's what I said to the doctor. You know, That's exactly what I said to the doctor. It was being that vulnerable, that humble, damn, it's gone wrong. Okay, how do we fix it? Yeah. And you've just put oh, that I've together just, just, then. just realized in this moment that's what I said to the All doctor.
0: Right, well, um, just so you can get up off my couch now and that'll be $50. <laughs> thanks. Um, talk oh to me. Oh my gosh, this is going
1: to cost me a fortune, <laughs> isn't it?
0: Talk to me about your research collaboration with the University of Adelaide School of Behavioural Science.
1: Yeah, I um, have been working with a couple of the universities now, uh, and I have students come to me um, and they help me to research the body of knowledge as it is at the moment and where we can take it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're working on building a survey for uh, durability. So there are plenty of surveys out there for resilience, um, but I want to hone one for uh, durability so that we can work out where we sit. Uh, One of the problems I have with it is that we have a different level of durability in every aspect of our lives. In work, we may be sitting just on a very comfortable mid-range durability. In sport, we may be absolutely brilliant. Uh, In our love life, we may be a little bit shaky there. In training our dogs, we may be, you know, Mm. all this. We're all over the place. Um, So you've got to be very, very focused on one aspect that you are uh, analysing at the time. Um, But I want to work out how we can make it even more applicable to anybody and everybody. Mm. It is in my opinion at the moment, it's a universal philosophy. Uh, Wherever anybody needs or thinks they need resilience, I believe they actually need durability.
0: Durability. Durability. Okay. Then just really clearly, because we've been speaking about it for so long, and I must admit, I came into this conversation thinking they were almost interchangeable words. Just once again, durability is?
1: Durability is sustainable, optimal performance.
0: And resilience is?
1: The ability to bounce back.
0: Okay. Okay. What do you do to manage pressure and stress in your everyday life?
1: Functional resilience. Um, it's about taking a look at uh, when am I starting to get overwhelmed? When are the decisions becoming harder? Um, when are things becoming tiring? Um, and I, I go back to my functional resilience Sleep, nutrition is number one, having meaningful connections with people and sitting down and having conversations. And meaningful connections with people is not all the people that we pass in the street, all our good mates at work, and it's not even the closest people we have dinner with. It's these people with meaningful connections are the people that you could ring at three o'clock in the morning and say, hey, listen, need someone to talk to. You. Yep, mate, I'm on my way. I'm, I'm there. There are not many people in our lives that will do that, um, but we've got to know who they are, um, and
0: then use them too. And yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. be prepared to yeah. reach out. Um, being able to ask for support is is one of the functional. Resilient. Uh, sorry, the aspirational resilience.
0: Mm-hmm. See, I was just so hoping that you said that you lounged out on you know on the couch and ate Doritos and <laughs> whatever. Well, okay. But you're very so, process driven. You always have been. That seems to be how you've been wired, right? It,
1: it is. But yeah, you know, my functional resilience. I'll, I'll just read them out to you um, because there are six steps. Okay. Sleep and nutrition, meaningful yeah. connection, having empathy for ourselves and for other people absolutely important. Getting active um, and getting active is not the elite level. It's just getting started. Uh, But this is the one that you are absolutely going to love. Guilt-free indulgence.
0: Yes. (laughs) Absolutely essential. Uh,
1: I mean, I talk about sleep and nutrition and people go, oh my gosh, Derek, you're so fit. You're so healthy. Um, I can tell you right now, when I open a packet of Tim Tams, I generally stop at around about two packets high five me, high five <laughs> me. I'm there, and, and that's my guilt-free indulgence when i'm tired when i'm yeah. feeling sad when i just want to veg out i will indulge in the chocolate and i'll have a drink of alcohol i, I don't have a problem with it but it's got to be guilt-free. guilt-free
0: that's the key absolutely engagement if you're yeah. going to
1: do it enjoy it to the max i know that that's not going to be my lifestyle i'll get back onto healthy eating again obviously my next meal or whatever um but guilt-free indulgence from taking a break from work. I did some work with some, some CEOs uh, and one of them arrived late and said, oh, listen, I really apologise. Uh, I've been trying to deal with everything at work, getting it out of the way, getting it all set up because I'm about to take two weeks holidays and I just want to make sure I've got my emails in place so that I can answer them. I've still got connection wherever I'm going. That's not a guilt-free two-week holiday, hmm. right? Right. You've got to be able to take time away from work. And even our family situations, in fact, I was reading something this morning that said, I really love being around people. I really love my alone time as well. We've got to have some alone time. We've got to be able to get away and go, do you know something? It's just getting too much. The guilt-free indulgence may be going for a walk in the park. It may be going and playing your yeah, greatest different hobby, things. Yeah, different whatever things it different might people. be, but mm-hmm. but it's got to be guilt-free.
0: So before I get to our final question, can you just go through those six things again just to remind everybody?
1: So it's sleep and nutrition, meaningful connection, empathy for yourself and others. And I know that empathy for yourself is compassion. Uh, It just works better this way. Get active, guilt-free indulgence, and then reframe your challenges. And when you go through those five first, reframing your challenges, coming back to them and going, do you know something? Maybe it wasn't as big a problem as I thought because our mind is relaxed, robs the opportunities, possibilities. Um, so that's the functional resilience and aspirational resilience has six steps as well and they are the ones that take on the passion.
0: I said I'd only have one more question but now I've got two. <laughs> okay. Do you ever imagine what would have happened to you on that day back in 1994 as you're lying there for three hours, shot 14 times in five seconds if you hadn't had that training, if you hadn't had those honest conversations, if you hadn't framed everything?
1: Yeah, I've I've thought about that a lot. I probably would have died. I have no doubt about that at all. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have been able to control my body. I wouldn't have slowed down my heart rate. I wouldn't have slowed down my breathing. Um, And I would have just bled freely. And Mm. having a severed artery um, for three hours, in fact, two severed arteries for for three hours, I would have bled to death. Mm. And, and there are reasons why those arteries didn't bleed, and that's physiological, medical stuff. Uh, but the doctors don't know how it happened. But no doubt in my mind, uh, without what frame I have been talking about today, I would have died.
0: So then that's what makes this question even more important, I think. What do you think you've learned from being a leader that you wish you knew right back at the start of your career, or... Do you think that you have just kept growing on what you knew at the start, what you took on at the start?
1: That's a deep question.
0: Well, I'm charging oh. you millions of dollars on this couch, remember. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's worked well so far. <laughs> um, there's no doubt in the world that we always grow. We, we are always building on, on what we have had previously but to be able to grow and grow quickly, we have to acknowledge what we've done well, as well as analysing what we've done badly. Uh, when we can draw on what we've done well, we can build on it. Um, do I think I've always had this? No. I, I think if I was to talk to my younger self, I would say trust my gut more often, uh, be more vulnerable to making mistakes and make mistakes quicker and as, as many as I possibly can. It's, it's the mistakes that I've made uh, that I've learned from.
0: Well, Derek McManus, this has been absolutely fascinating. Chad, I cannot thank you enough for being so honest and vulnerable with us today.
1: Uh, Ali, thank you for my therapy session. It has <laughs> been wonderful. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you as well, as always.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Leveling Up, your leadership podcast. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow Pace at the University of Adelaide on LinkedIn for more on how you can take your career to new heights.